I often think about the wandering Israelites in the wilderness. Forty years. Forty years because of disobedience. Because of being rescued by the very power of God, brought out, redeemed, delivered, saved, and complaining, (laughs) not believing. And Moses, as Deuteronomy records, is delivering his last speeches, his last sermons, retrospectives, if you will. He gets up and he says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain and my speech settle like dew, like gentle rain on new grass, like showers on tender plants. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are just a God of faithfulness without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. His people have acted corruptly toward Him. The spot on them is not that of His children, but of a perverse and crooked generation. Is this how you repay the Lord, O foolish and senseless people? Is He not your Father and Creator? Has He not made you and established you? A perverse and crooked generation, says Paul. A generation who saw the mightiest empire on earth completely ravaged, overran, completely and utterly destroyed with a climax of death to firstborns and armies swallowed up by the sea. They still wondered. They still questioned. Is God faithful? Is He with us? Could He safely guide us into a land that He promised us? Is He faithful? And Moses missed the promised land because of it. And he says at the end of his life, He is. He is faithful. All His ways are justice, a God of truth and righteous. He is your Father, Israel. He established you. And I bring this up because I, I, I wonder, leading into assume, Paul's been reading Deuteronomy 32. Because as the Israelites came out of the salvation they experienced from the Egyptians, only to give way to doubt, disunity, perverseness, and crookedness, so Paul is explaining the new Moses and the new Exodus. And it is about none other than the prophet Moses told about, and how Christ has saved us from our captors of sin and Satan and hell and God's wrath upon sinners. Thus, Paul will call his Christians to not be like the Israelites, but to be shining lights amid a perverse and crooked generation. So we're going to read that together in Philippians 2. And even though I covered it last week, I'm going to back up a few verses Uh, from the ones I intend to study, since the ones I intend to study start with a therefore. (laughs) So we should probably note why the therefore is therefore. So I do invite you to stand if you're able. Philippians 2, let's read verses 5 
through the beginning of 16. Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as if you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act on behalf of his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine as lights in the world as you hold forth the word of life. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, these are your words that you inspired Paul to write. Breathe life into them. Please use them to attack and to do surgery on our hearts. Use them as the sword of truth that they are. Expose sins where they are. Bring about redemption, regeneration, restoration. Father, only you can accomplish these things. Please do us the mercy and grace of giving us open and receptive hearts and ears and a mind attuned to what you are saying. Help us to be willing to change. Help us to be willing to be humble. And help us to be willing to do what you call us to do. Help us to see that you are the only most satisfying source of life in our world. And as we walk in your ways and do your will, we will be satisfied and fulfilled. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I touched the tip of an iceberg last week. I don't know about you, but I don't think I can ever fully appreciate and saturate and know what I'm saying whenever I say the sovereign creator of the universe who numbers the stars, numbers the hairs on every single person's head who's ever lived. For some of you, that's a lot easier. Who made the highest of mountains, deepest of seas, created the sun. I don't fully appreciate that that being walked the dirt he made for us breathed the air we breathe, and beyond that, suffered and died for us. Our Creator, our God, died for us willingly, volunteering it. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And if that God came for us, and if he suffered for us, and if he died for us, and if Paul notes that the end will be that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue 
confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, we should take note then, as Paul is about to take note, of how we are responding to this. If we claim that He has changed us, then how does He change us? Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, first off, this working out of salvation, this is not anywhere near performing to receive your salvation. And I'm not saying that because I'm a good Protestant, even though I am. I'm saying that because the original language is abundantly clear that that is not what is being stated. Now, first off, let us handle this word salvation. Salvation in the Greek means deliverance or rescue. This is why the Old Testament symbols of salvation is best depicted in the deliverance of the Israelites from Pharaoh, from Egypt. And we know then, or should see then, that salvation is always a gift, right? Why did God save the Israelites? Well, lucky for us, we can look back and see what he said. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I am aware of their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Did you hear that? What did he say? I have seen their affliction. I have heard their crying. I am aware of their sufferings. What did he not say? And when I rescue them, I expect them to do thus and so. In fact, I'm rescuing them because they did thus and so. No. Deliverance, salvation, it's not about who we are, it's about who he is. A rescuer, a redeemer. But then you might say, yeah, Kevin, but let's note the differences too. Is our, is our salvation a rescue in the closest of senses, like the Exodus did, like God rescued the Israelites? We have been rescued. That's exactly how Paul describes our salvation to the Colossians. He says, He, God, has Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what is Paul saying, work out your salvation? Paul is getting to the application of our salvation with fear and trembling. Don't let salvation be wasted. Don't become rescued persons who apparently forget so quick and easily who your rescuer is, what he's capable of, to then say he's brought us out here to die. He's brought us out here to starve. We're going, we were better off enslaved, overworking. Sounds familiar. Paul is saying, you're saved, now what? And you say, yeah, I'm saved, now what? Fear and trembling. What is, what is, what's that? The fear and trembling is not panic and alarm. Right? It's not a, I'm working out my salvation because God's gonna smite me any moment. He might remove his hand of blessing. I might disappoint him. It might not be. Paul's talking about awe and reverence. 
because of who saved us. Again, this is God for the Israelites. The entire life source, the Nile River turning into blood. Supernatural winds bringing in swarms of locusts. Frogs out of nowhere overturning Egypt. Dying livestock, dying firstborn, split seas, pillars of fire. This was God who rescued them so visibly. He rescued them. He's going to let us starve. Right? God's got their food problems sorted. No questions. And you say, yeah, stupid Israelites. And I say, I profess that God Almighty became flesh, voluntarily died for me because He loves me, rose again, promised me my sins are forgiven, promised He'll come to reclaim me. And then I say, He's going to let those school loans sink me for the rest of my life, isn't He? Right? Insert your measly, tiny little problem in that sentence. And I know, you're like, measly? But my point is, doesn't God have it covered? Doesn't He really have it covered? And furthermore, what are we doing worrying about school loan bills when He's got big plans for us? Over in Ephesians, Paul says, the reason God saves us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared before Him that we should walk in them. Christ's rescue goes beyond the initial rescue. It's sanctifying work. John Wesley used to imagine salvation as a house, and he said the conversion experience wasn't the house. It was only the door. And if I told you you're invited to my house, you would think differently if I said you're invited to the door. The house is salvation, and salvation is sanctification, the ongoing, maturing, all-encompassing process of where God redeems every area of my life. Which is why Paul says when we work out our salvation, it is not even us who is working, but verse 13 in our text, for it is God who works in you to will and to act on behalf of His good purpose. Sounds a lot like being God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation means we were created for more. The Israelites weren't just created to come out of the promised land and wander. (laughs) It's what they did, but that wasn't God's plan or His fault. So if you feel like you're wandering right now, that's not on God, that's on you. Well, what do I do? What are the good works? How do I continue forward? I don't know why you sound like that. But (laughs) I've already borrowed from Colossians and Ephesians, and we're in Philippians, so now I guess I'll just borrow from Galatians, get most of Paul's letters, weighing in on the subject. How do we move forward after we're saved? What things do we do? Well, Paul actually mentions this in Romans, but more succinctly in Galatians. Chapter 5, he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? When it comes down to it, these are the two paths, is it not? For the Israelites, it was the flesh. It was not, what now, God, when they came out of Egypt? No, they asked, who's going to feed us? Right? The flesh. 
The difference then is that you and I should walk by the Spirit. For the flesh craves what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are opposed to each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. So here's the list. Are you on this list? In this list? If you're wandering and wondering, God, what now? Where do you fall in and on this list? Here are the acts of the acts of flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Some translations say licentiousness. The first three of these are in many ways sexual. Sounds like the scriptures have a pulse on what trips people up. Verse 20, idolatry. And I know you and I never deal with that. We never put anything, anyone, ourselves, our feelings in front of God. We never do that, I know. That's called sarcasm. And sorcery, which in that day and age required taking in toxins into the body, just saying. Hatred, discord, jealousy and rage, rivalries, divisions, factions, good thing we don't live in a polarized atmosphere, and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Are you on that list? Are you tempted by that list? Because if you and I are, maybe that's why we're wandering. 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the things you and I need to sow into. The Spirit lives in us to will and to work for His good purpose. And how that looks in real life when you and I, children of God, to start to show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is what God is doing in us. Therefore, back in Philippians 2, do everything without complaining or arguing. Right? So in other words, Kevin, uh, don't be real about it. Don't be genuine. Yay, I'm working for Jesus. And even though this sounds boring, frustrating, stupid, and stressful, I'm going to hide my emotions and do it anyways because I'm all in. I said this a few weeks ago, but I think somewhere along the way in our culture of if you feel it, you must be it. We lost the art of self-talk and self-conditioning. We started to let feelings rule. See, we've told people, if you feel this way, you must be this way. Whereas godly wisdom says, we heard it once today, the heart is deceitful above all things. I don't know, maybe follow your heart isn't good wisdom. I'm a sluggard, a glutton, my heart says sit down, have some popcorn, relax. Yeah, perhaps a good once in a while, but God says get up, I have a job for you, go, I'm sending you, right? And here's the thing. We're headed into Philippians 2 where there meets... Deuteronomy 32, and I opened with, isn't it interesting what Paul is saying? Do everything without complaining or arguing. And we're supposed to be reminded of the Israelites who complained. Where's our food? We've been let out here to die. And argued, who put Moses in charge? I could lead this group better. He leaves for months on end to meet with God and leaves us here to die. But here's what I'm thinking. The Israelites lost the vision. 
Proverbs 29.18 says, Where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. The King James says they perish. Because what was the vision for the Israelites? The promised land. That's what keeps people going. That's what Hebrews 11 is talking about. These all, the Old Testament saints of old, they all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them and embraced them from afar and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. If indeed they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had enough time to return. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They were seeking a city. That's why the remnant, the righteous, were able to leave their own homelands, work to deliver Israelites from nations. There was a vision. So do everything without complaining and arguing. How do you do that? You realize you're not working for people or places or ministries that you're working for. You're working towards the vision. You're working towards God, for God, for His glory. Is this making any sense? I'll just keep preaching and pretend you understand. So do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation. There's that phrase from Deuteronomy 32, in which you shine as lights in the world. Here's what I think Paul is saying. Jesus came and broke the cycle of Adam. He came and broke the cycle of Israel. Christ was a better Israel, an obedient Israel. And what he does is give us his spirit so that we can break the cycle. We don't need to be the crooked and perverse generation that Moses had the great honor of blessing his generation with that last speech, right? Oh, the great prophet Moses, he's, he's handing the baton to Joshua. He's the one who led us from Israel. Who's, what's he going to say? You guys stank it up big time, right? You were a crooked and perverse people. You couldn't spell obedience even if you had flashcards. Good job. And Paul is saying Christ died for more. Christ offers more. You can be obedient. Don't grumble, complain, bicker, argue. Obey, you are capable. And the obedience is worth it. The obedience is worth it. I don't know. I just sometimes get the feeling, here's how people think. Here's how self-professing Christ died for me, His blood for my sins, Christians think sometimes. They think doing things for Jesus is boring. Or maybe because Christ demands selflessness and giving up, it's therefore hard, undesirable, not enjoyable. And so run-of-the-mill Christians will come and sit and here's what I did as a child. I would enjoy missionaries from afar. <laughs> I never really wondered why it was from afar. But if we're honest, the prospect of doing what they do is uncomfortable. And maybe God calls them, but certainly not you or me. And I wonder if we get these weird thoughts of, to be a Christian is great, yeah. Feels like the world might say we're backward or we got restrictions. And if we're honest, we have similar feelings too about our calling. But hey, Heaven's in the future, so we, do, we just don't question it too much. That's a wandering Christianity. That's an aimless Christian. That's a Christianity without a vision, without a promised land in sight. The Christian life isn't a I must 
And I guess it's set up this way, so I should probably. And the obedience to Christ and His kingdom isn't to be done out of judgmental fear or coercion. It's supposed to be priceless, enticing, desirous. Like treasure hidden in a field, when a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. And I dare say, obedience to especially the hard things and the challenging things. I'm sure, sure, and I'm sure fear and coercion and imposition can get people to do a lot of hard things. But when things are put out before people as desirable, here is a son of promise, Abram. I know you have dentures and diapers yourself, but, right? If the challenge becomes desirable, people are all in. Is this making sense? And the challenge brings people out of fear and captivity to themselves, their anxieties, and into obedience, and they shine like lights in the world. Let's look back at verse 15. We're to be blameless and pure. To be blameless doesn't expect sinlessness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 1 John 1.8 But to be blameless means to be above criticism. If we say we will sin and then we do nothing about it, then we'll have blame. What's the next right thing after sinning? Are we doing it? Because if we are, if we're seeking forgiveness where it is needed, if we're trying to right any wrongs we've done, then we grow into blamelessness. Amen? Pure means wholesome in character and single-minded. The Greek term was used for wines or metals being unmixed. And when applied to character, it means not being mixed with evil. I'm reminded of uh, George Fox, the, the founder, if you will, of the Quaker movement. And before he started his own wandering and struggling in the faith, before he began to form the friends, he was invited by a cousin to a tavern for a drink. And they were met by a third party, a professor of religion, Fox calls him in his journal. And while there, the professor begins to initiate drinking games. And that bothered Fox, that a professor of religion would initiate such impiety. Being a young man, it struck Fox as an example of someone who is impure, right? Someone who says he's religious, he knows the Bible, he likely even encourages others to know the Bible, to be about what it says to be, but here he is showing another side. Can light and dark coexist? No, we're supposed to be children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation. We're supposed to shine as lights in the world as you hold forth the word of life. It takes about 10 seconds to look around and be honest with ourselves and with the world to note the dichotomy. Denote the binary world we live in. I know binary is a controversial word in our day and age, but when people mutilate the flesh to cause harm, both pain physical and emotional and mental, and when people say it's convenient to murder babies, when people say ignoring, denying, and dismissing our Creator in order to give in to these death-bringing activities, it's easy to profess Christ and His Gospel and His message as a word of life. And Christ is the answer in how we shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. Paul opens his letter to the Philippians with this. He's in prison because he shares the word of life. 
And he mentions from prison, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances, that is, being in prison for preaching the word, have actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. And most of the brothers, confident in the Lord by my chains, now dare more greatly to speak the word without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, however, preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can add to the distress of my chains. What then is the issue? Just this, that in every way, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. See, the Israelites are freed from captivity. And they complain and argue. Paul is in captivity and he rejoices and preaches. There's a difference here, isn't there? It's Christ's word. It's the vision of his kingdom. That's what gets Paul out of bed in the morning, even if his bed is in a prison. This is, is this connecting? Are you wandering? Are you wandering? Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, rivalries, divisions, factions, envy, drunkenness. Wandering? Right, like the Israelites, we, we have the amazing freeing of captivity from the strongest empire on earth. We have the promised land in front of us and I'm hungry. I'm going to starve. Those small tribes who inhabit the land who would have buckled under an instant under the might of Egypt, they're too big. Are you wandering? We have the amazing freeing of, of captivity from the strongest forces on earth, sin, and we have the promised land, eternal pleasures forevermore with our king who freed us in front of us. And I got unpaid school loans. And I don't want to be nice to people. And so here's the point. Unlike those Hebrews who came out of Egypt, listen to the book of Hebrews and keep the vision. Don't lose the vision. The vision of the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field. In the kingdom of God, you and I can have unrelenting joy practicing pure obedience. Because we know it's the only thing that will bring joy, that will satisfy. Something tells me that just as we were told in Hebrews, where we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac on the altar. He who had received the promises was ready to offer his one and only son, even though God had said to him, Through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and in a sense, he did receive Isaac back from death. Something tells me that this applies to all the saints who knew that obedience is worth it. To use similar language, by faith, when David, when he was pursued into the wilderness, when he was pursued out of Israel, by faith, he still reasoned he would be king one day, even if it didn't look like it. So maybe it's this. Maybe, yes, you're wandering due to your own complaining and bickering. And maybe once you confess, repent, and get back on track, you'll still wonder. You'll still be in a wilderness. You'll be taking Isaac to the proverbial sacrifice, wondering, this is my promised boy. You'll still be in a wilderness, going from cave to cave, wondering, I thought I was called to be king. 
But whatever your wilderness and your wandering, know this, obedience is worth it. Obedience to the kingdom of God is worth it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, we think about what our brother Philip read for us in 1 Corinthians 10 and how these things were written down for us, for our benefit. And how Paul urges then and he urges in Philippians 2 to not be like those people who complained and argued. But Father, help us to be like the saints that the author of Hebrews lays out in Hebrews 11, who didn't lose sight of the vision, who knew who they were working for, what they were working towards. And even whenever we wander in the wilderness, if it's because of our own sins, help us to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. But maybe we're doing everything we think is okay, but we're wondering, why are you sending me in the opposite direction of what I thought you were giving me? Maybe we're just in a season like Abraham was when he was taking Isaac, or maybe like David going from cave to cave. Maybe like the Israelites who still hadn't received the promised land and now they're going to Egypt to see Joseph. Whatever the case is, Father, help us to never lose sight of the fact that obedience is worth it. It is a treasure hidden in a field. And help us to not lose sight of that because it will compel us forward. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask and pray that you would do this work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.